0: Hello there, this is Jason Dees, and this is the Think Through It podcast. Think Through It exists to help people think through the big questions of life and culture. On the Think Through It podcast, we'll be talking with friends, cultural influencers, and forward thinkers about the things that all of us need to be thinking about. Today, I'll be talking with a friend and strategist, Aaron Coe. Aaron was at the tipping point of bringing an urban resurgence to church planting at the North American Mission Board. He's now working broadly with different churches and businesses to leverage resources for the sake of the kingdom through a problem-solving organization that he began called Future City Now. Aaron has thought a lot about the global city, so I thought it'd be interesting to bring him in for a conversation about cities. What are cities? What are the future of cities? And how should Christians who live in cities be thinking? As of 2007, most of the world's population now lives in cities, and people just keep moving in. So this is an important conversation that we must have, and I want to thank you for joining me and Aaron Coe as we think through it. So, you and um, your wonderful wife moved to New York City. What year was that?
1: So, we moved up there in 2003.
0: Okay, and, and you kind of, September 11th was a part of that story a little bit, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, so we were uh, planting a church in Atlanta, a uh, part of that team. And, you know, as far as we were concerned. What was that church? It's called North Star Church. It's yeah. up in the uh, Kennesaw, Ackworth area. And,. You know, as far as we were concerned, my wife was from Clemson, South Carolina. You know, she actually, she grew up in a little town called Oakway, South Carolina. That's home to a stop sign. You know, at, at the time it it's had a, a great stop sign. Though. It had a flashing red light on it. Oh, that's so, big time. You know, they went real big time a few years ago and they got a dollar general store. Oh, okay. And so, man, yeah. they're cruising. And then I grew up in a little community outside of Louisville called Highview. And uh, so, you know, we were not big city minded people. So we were here in Atlanta, loving Jesus, helping plant the church and then had an opportunity. But kind of up in
0: Kennesaw. So it was suburban.
1: Suburban Atlanta. Absolutely. Absolutely. So
0: September 11th happens. You're here kind of planting and you start thinking about New York City?
1: Yeah, I think what happened with September 11th is just our whole mindset about where we grew up and just our mindset about the world really shifted. And all of a sudden, you know, the world just really expanded for us because it went beyond this sort of southeastern United States existence to... Man, there are real people. There are real needs in. There's worldview like
0: the, conflict going on out there. Hundred percent. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. And but we didn't do anything about that immediately. It was a year after 9/11 when we were uh, confronted with the opportunity to, to move to New York. And at the time, it's like, hey, we're young, no kids. Newly married, who shouldn't live in New York? Who who doesn't want to go? (laughs) Exactly, it'll be like Friends. It was a no-brainer, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent.
0: So, did you? So you moved there in two thousand and three to plant the Gallery Church, which is still going strong. I actually was up there. In the summer, and I talked to a guy, he was a Presbyterian guy, but he knew all about the gallery, knew a bunch yeah. of guys over there. So how did that happen? I mean, what did you do? How do yeah, you so how do you start a church in the city? Well,
1: initially, we moved up there to do student ministry, and we were connecting with college students, helping them, you know, find local churches, et cetera and this over time we recognize. i mean there's a huge need here and you know we should plant a church and so luckily we had already lived in the city a couple of years we had some great friendships and so we already had a core group of people that when we said hey we're going to plant a church they they were did in it with us yeah, yeah they were in and so that's that's kind of how we got started
0: so how did moving to new york in 2003 doing ministry starting a church help shape your understanding of You know, sociology, or what is a city? And maybe I'll just ask you that question what is a city?
1: Well, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that answer. I mean, there's uh, really no great answer out there as to what a city is. I mean, you go to Webster's Dictionary and Webster's is going to say it's a place where a lot of people live. (laughs) And so so we can unpack a little bit over the course of this, like what the definition of a city is. But, you know, for me living in a place like New York, I mean, I was immediately confronted with God's purposes in the city. And in particular, I was immediately confronted with uh, the strategy that density and diversity provide for the church
0: and so that's something maybe I mean getting to a definition I mean I guess the traditional English definition of a city is uh, a place with a market and a cathedral right. right I mean that would make it different than a town right um, or whatever but uh, but the the I think the modern city definition has something to do with as you said population density, and population diversity, it, we're not talking about a homogenous group of people. Right, well,
1: yeah, according to the U.S. Census, so if you wanna get like technical, I mean, they have a definition of what an urban area looks like. And it is, so for them, an urban area is 50,000 or more people. And then they have another definition called an urban cluster that's anything from 2,500 to 50,000 people. So if you wanna get technical like that, yeah, yeah. there is a definition out there. But like, you know, how you define a city like Atlanta versus how you define a city like uh, New York City. I mean, it's very different. I mean, in Atlanta, there's no natural barriers. And so we kind of get to decide what we want Atlanta. Yeah, we can
0: decide our own density. Correct. In a different way. Correct.
1: Um, And then, you know, Manhattan's got natural barriers. And so, I mean, it's got its own kind of definition of, you know, what that is.
0: And yeah, obviously New York City is, is kind of unlike any city in the United States and maybe any city in the world, but I, I, I'm interested in this concept of a global city and, um, you know, where, uh, you know, how cities relate to one another. I think I heard somebody talking one time about kind of the commonality of the global city, meaning this, you and I like living in Atlanta, which is kind of a global city, I guess maybe have more in common with someone living in like Shanghai that lives in kind of the urban core of Shanghai than we do obviously with, um, you know, somebody that lives 50 miles outside of Shanghai. Right. Uh, But then they were going on to say that really those two people have more in common than the one living in the center of Shanghai and the one living 50 miles out. So we would have more in common with that person than they do, with the person living 50 miles outside of Shanghai. And that's an interesting thing to think through.
1: Yeah, because I mean, what a global city is, is really, it's just a highly connected command point, right? I mean, it's just, and so whether you're in finance or whether you're in education or whether you're in the arts um, or whatever sector of society you happen to be in inside of a city, you're probably relating to your colleagues and counterparts in other cities more so than you're relating to people in your own geographical area, and so that's really the idea of a, a city is that it's it's this interconnected web of uh, places all over the world, really, that, you know, if you're in finance, you're doing business with people and all those other. And to some degrees,
0: webs. I mean, to some degree, I guess cities have, you know, New York and London, for example, have been connected for 200 years now, right. but it's a whole new level now in the last 25 years or so with the advent of the internet and just high-speed communication and even travel. I mean, how many—I mean, it used to be, and I'm talking, you know, certainly 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, a big deal to fly internationally. But now, you know, there's people in our churches that are flying internationally
1: every week. and I I think there's a few things that have happened over the last— 25 years. I mean, one in particular, one big world event that really got no coverage is that in 2007, human history changed forever. And that meant that human history went from being predominantly a rural existence to predominantly urban. And that we crossed that threshold in, in 2007. Well, how did we get there? Well, we got there because the population is continuing to grow. And one of the things that I find very interesting, and this is something key for believers to kind of clue in on here because we we love people, but from the time the world began until 1804, we put our first billion people on the planet, okay? And then in the next 123 years, we added our second billion people, and then it took us about 40 years to add the third billion yeah, that's unbelievable. people, and now we're adding a billion people every 12 now, years. Now, is
0: that going to slow, though? I feel like I saw some data the other day that that projects that to hit the, you know, you said 12 years, you know, it'll hit that, you know, 10 years will be the quickest, and then it'll start spreading out again because birth rates are going down, or I mean, I don't know, am I wrong on that? certainly our production of food continues to grow which obviously adds to population and then also our production of or just our our ability to keep people alive medication is obviously massively improving globally and even things like clean water or whatever I mean there's a lot of reasons that humans are living which right. uh, you know sounds like kind of a torrid thing to talk about in a podcast booth but I mean I guess it's just a reality of of data analysis.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, prognosticators have always said that, you know, we're, you know, we have the, the, we run the risk of population slowing down, shrinking, et cetera. But the reality is from it's not, ni- the data is not showing that from 1960 to now, you know, we've gone from 3 billion to over 7 billion. And from, from 1960 now, it's basically been every 14 13 12 years so it's actually gotten a little bit faster yeah. you know more recently so, so what is
0: the what does cities look like in 2050 or 2100 I mean what what are we looking at there
1: well I think we're what we're looking at is 75 percent of the world's population by 2050 will live in our largest cities globally meaning yeah. that people aren't spreading out they're coming closer they're getting in together and there's a lot of reasons for that but a lot of it has to do with economy Economy and just that's where you're going to survive and thrive is because you need other people in order to to do that.
0: Now, I, I, I've said before that Aaron has transcended to become an evangelical problem solver. I am just a local village parson, but we, we came from the same kind of uh, Southern Baptist heritage, good little boys going to our Baptist churches, which are... You know, history. Our denominational history has done really, really well in rural areas, um, and and has done well in suburban areas. Has traditionally done really poorly in urban areas in terms of having healthy churches, evangelism, etc. And I don't think that the Southern Baptists are alone in that. Um, I think that's pretty true of Christendom, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting if you kind of compare that to where Christianity began. Uh, obviously you know the the church fathers were looking around and saying we're reaching a lot of people in the cities but we haven't reached anyone in these rural areas so talk to me a little bit about that what is this urbanization everybody's moving into cities what what, what effect is this going to have on the church how should I think about this as a Christian
1: well I think there's several ways we need to to think about it but I think the best way to think about it is that Christians who live in cities have influence. Um, and I, I would argue that a, a Christian living in a city is going to have more influence um, in their field and on their peers than somebody who lives out in a rural area. And so, you know, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, who really, you know, he, he, though his ministry was in Chicago, I mean, he, he came from a rural upbringing. But when he moved to Chicago, he really saw the strategic nature of cities. And, you know, he's quoted famously by saying, you know, water runs down hills and the, yeah, the highest yeah. hills are the great cities. And if we're gonna reach the world, we've got to reach the cities. And I think that really encapsulates the possibility of, of cities. And And I think when I look at a city, the reason it's strategic um, is a you're you're surrounded by a lot of people so you have opportunities you know to to share your life share the gospel with other people but you also see with cities a natural radiation effect just that that is caused by a influence and b just practically by moving people yeah. are always moving in and moving yeah. out and wh- whenever they're going somewhere they're carrying whoever they are with them to that. Yeah, if
0: you placement. go to a small town, you know, I pastored in Covington, Georgia. I pastored in New Washington, Indiana. I don't even know if you know where that <laughs> is. That. Um, and not many people do, but if, if any of the New Washington folks are listening, I think you're awesome. But, you know, everybody in New Washington, everybody in New Washington had lived in New Washington for like a hundred years, oh, you know. Right. I mean, their families had been there. They're part of the whole. No one was coming in. No one was going out. You know, people were staying there Um, Covington, Georgia, a little bit different because it's so close to Atlanta, but a lot of the stable families of the community had been in the community for years and years and years. That is very different in Atlanta.
1: Well, Forbes Magazine has this great interactive map that you can go to and you can click on the 10-year migration patterns for every county in the United States. And so what I always encourage people to do is go find the most rural county that you can find yeah. in the United States and click on that and look at the migration pattern. There there's it's almost non-existent. Right, yeah. You know, people are just
0: there or not there.
1: Yeah. Somebody might have moved once in that 10 year yeah, period. Yeah, like yeah. literally. But then you you click on a medium sized city and then all of a sudden you start to see people are moving. And then go click on LA, Miami, New York, and you have coverage over the entirety of the United States. Yeah. Because over the 10-year period, they're moving everywhere. I mean, millions of people are moving, yeah. moving around. Yeah. And they're moving in. Yeah. So, I, I, I personally, I tie this to, the, you know, Acts 1-8, tie this to the Great Commission. You know, Why was Jerusalem so central to the spread of the gospel? Well, it's because of the radiation effect that Jerusalem had. Why? Because it was the center of commerce. It was the center of, or at least one of the centers of the world. And whatever was happening there was going to eventually find its way outward because of migration. Well, and it is
0: interesting, too, if actually you look at the demographic data, Jerusalem was obviously a significant city uh, in Judea, in what we know as Israel. Um, But it wasn't like a mega significant city in the Roman world. Antioch, for example, was, I think, five times as big. But what do you see? As soon as the church gets to Antioch, then boom, the gospel really goes out. And then, obviously, you know, Paul and his hearts to get to Rome, right? To so right. the to your point about D.L. Moody and the water moving downhill, they they saw that right. even, you know, shortly after the resurrection. Um, okay, so this is okay. This is something that I think is interesting. You know, we talked about, you know, there's a there's a great opportunity for Christians in the city because. People are moving in and out. There's a great way to impact big—like, for example, in L.A., you can impact the whole world through the people that are coming in and out. But um, I think Christianity changes—and and hear what I'm saying here— in rural areas and in urban areas, right? And who Christians kind of tend to be. So I think one of the reasons that uh, our denomination, you know, use Southern Baptist as an example here— has struggled in cities is a lot of times we take kind of our rural and suburban kind of Christian culture and then just say, well, we can just go do that, you know, in a city. And what I mean by this is in a, in a super rural area, it's more easy to have, it's easier to have like a homogenous kind of culture where everybody shares the same values, mm-hmm. where everybody shares kind of the same ethos, um, which is really just, you don't have that You do maybe in little pockets here and there, but you don't have that in a widespread area across cities. And so the way that we interpret our faith, the way that we relate to others, the way that we educate our kids even, the way that we conduct business, the way that we talk as Christians, not that I think Christians in the cities are any less faithful to Christ, but I I think our tone um we 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 have to change our mindset as to who we are in those environments i don't know comment on that yeah yeah
1: yeah well i think the the, the reality is that in a homogenous society no one challenges your assumptions yeah, because you yeah. all have the same assumptions but when you move to a pluralistic place, a society, you know, where there's a lot of different ideas, a lot of people, different backgrounds, your assumptions are getting challenged all of the day. So yeah, you live in a rural homogenous place like Oakway, South Carolina, where my wife is from. Everybody pretty much believes the same way. And so you can espouse whatever you want, as long as it kind of fits in that general framework and you're fine. But again, you move to a city, and all of a sudden, um, your your presuppositions are being challenged.
0: So what does that mean for us as Christians living in a pluralistic place?
1: Everybody better figure out how to be a theologian. Yeah. Meaning that you've got to be able to interpret the Bible. You've got to be able to apply that to your life because you can't just take the set of, you know— uh, systematic theology tenets that you kind of learned in your your rural existence or your homogenous existence you can't just take those and apply those now to this pluralistic environment you've got to be able to read the scripture on your own and be able to apply it and just because your preacher said it somewhere else doesn't mean it's it's necessarily true in this environment now again i'm not saying that the underlying um foundation of the gospel changes at all, but how we apply it, how we communicate it absolutely changes because of who the hearers are, because of who the audience is.
0: Yeah, and I think I I, uh, 100% affirm that. I mean, one of the things we always talk about at Christ Covenant is training gospel fluency. It's exactly what you're talking about. Like, you can't get by if you want to have any sort of outward-facing witness if you even if you really want to maintain your own faith if you're really listening to people you have to be able to apply the gospel mm-hmm. in pretty sophisticated ways because you're applying the gospel to a variance of different worldviews. i mean right. just you know on my street there are people from all different sets of um either other religions you know and orthodox in those religions or Uh, are very, very secular, or kind of somewhere in between. Um, And so even like interpreting, you know, some people, you know, for example, may say that they're a Christian, and even that word in a city may mean a a lot of different things, right? And so being able to apply God's Word, and as you said, being a theologian, being able to be fluent enough to apply God's Word to different people in different situations and I think it also implies that, to some degree, Christians—you know, Karl Barth kind of famously said, Christians should read two books every day, one is their Bible and one is their newspaper. And I think that that's kind of true. Like, not only do we have to understand our who we are, we also have to understand— our fellow man and what's framing their worldview and what's framing how they're you know, viewing the world.
1: Well, I, I just think when we live in a homogenous um, society or a homogenous place, we really don't have to have an empathy for others because we're all the same anyway. It's disconnected, yeah. We're disconnect- I mean, we're already, we already kind of know what each other's going through because we all know each other, right? But when you, when you move to a place where everybody's different, you have to develop an empathy for people and kind of put your own thinking on hold in order to sort of see the world through their eyes. Yeah, And that's a discipline. There's
0: clearer lines in rural areas, right? So there's strong empathy. I mean, you're not saying... Obviously, like in a rural area, like they love each other, people in those communities. But there's the other kind of people out there that read the different magazine or that watch the different news network you never see
1: yeah what, what, what I mean by empathy and, I, I, yeah, and, I know and exactly this what you're saying. Example is that if everybody's like you you don't really have to stop and think about the world from their point of view because you're all the same you're all coming from the same right yeah. background and if you apply that same logic to a place where everybody's different then you you're you're going to be left out in the cold pretty quickly, right? And so what I mean by empathy is that either you stop for a second and see the world through somebody else's point of view, even if you think it's absolutely off base, you still have to see it from that point of view and be able to communicate. And I think that's one of the challenges Christians have is that, again, they carry their assumptions into an an environment, and then they figure out that nobody's listening to them, and they end up kind of communicating in a a vacuum. And that's why— you know, you mentioned our denominational heritage. I think if you grew up in that and you kind of grew up with a mindset that said, you know, our way is the best way, our way is God's way, and then you move to a culture where that's not valued, all of a sudden you're just, you're kind of questioning a lot of things. And either A, you develop a flexibility and dexterity to be able to communicate appropriately in that new context, or B, you're not going to be successful because nobody's going to listen to you.
0: Yeah. So to that point, Very practically, what advice would you give to Christians living in cities, living in kind of that pluralistic environment that you're talking about?
1: Well, I think that Christians that move to cities got to have eyes on the street. And what I mean by that is pay attention to what's going on around you and not— uh, see it from your own point of view, but see it through the point of view of the people that you witness on the street and just kind of who are your neighbors, you know, and where do they, what do they do every day? You know, what do their family context look like? What are their uh, vocational context look like? And just really try to see the community uh, with fresh eyes. And uh, I think, again, that's a discipline because we're naturally wired to kind of see the thing, see things the way we want to see them. But I think when you move to a city, you've got you've to stop and see it the way that others see it. I mean, I remember one of the biggest mistakes that we made. Um, when we moved to New York, was along the political lines.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: again, grew up in the South, very conservative, so we voted a particular way, and then all of a sudden, we find ourselves living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where ninety-eight percent of the context voted another way. Sure, yeah, and uh, and we sort of wore early on, just kind of naively wore some of our political beliefs on our s- sleeves. And, I, and I'm not saying that our political beliefs were wrong necessarily, but I we did have to come to learn: Do we want to alienate ourselves yeah. from the rest of our neighbors over these political beliefs, or do we want to build a relationship so that we can ultimately share the gospel? And ultimately, you just had to ask: Like, what's more important here? Yeah. Yes, politics can be important. Yes, maybe some of our beliefs can ultimately come out in a long-range conversation. But we can't lead with that, or we're going to alienate ourselves. And, and, you
0: know, I think what you find, too, I mean, and, and you know, I've experienced the same kind of thing. What you find is when you actually sit down and have conversations over issues, your divide between people that may have staunchly different, you know, kind of what I'll call, like, tribal loyalties, uh, you know, you can, over issues, you can have, you can find a lot of common ground, because a lot of these things really are complex, and neither political party has a lot of good answers for it and
1: a thousand percent I mean yeah. uh, I, I remember like this literally happened um, there was a lady uh, who lived on the Upper West Side she was sort of the self-appointed mayor of the Upper West Side I mean she sent us a letter in the mail addressed to us now we didn't know her never met her but she sent us a letter and explained to my wife and I why we were going to set the Upper West Side culture back
0: yeah in, oh yeah a
1: lot of years because of who we were and what we believed. sure and, uh, and I thought, well, this is amazing. She doesn't even know us. Well, as, as God would have it, you know, we ended up running into her um, out on the street one time. And uh, to her surprise, you know, we were nice to her. And we ended up developing a relationship with her. And, you know, over several years, we came to that same conclusion. It's Like, listen, we have far more in common than we do That's right, differences yeah. because the root of the issues are all you know, Yeah,
0: we're trying to solve problems. We're trying to do yeah, what's right. Correct. Uh, I, uh, Colin Hansen came and did a Covenant Institute for us a few months ago, and it was a really helpful analogy. He said, look, as Christians, we have to realize in a secular environment that you're playing for the visiting team. And I liked that yeah, analogy great. because, you know, the visiting team, they come in and you make all these assumptions about them. You know, I remember I was telling somebody the other day, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Ben Dockery. When I first met Ben, he was he was really uh, one of the first Alabama fans that I had become good friends with. That was really godly and gracious, and and it totally like threw my perception of Alabama fans <laughs> as you know that I had as a kid off oh, because I was like I don't realize these people love Jesus. These people are kind. And uh, you know, I just as a, you know, an Auburn fan. You have the perception of they're all just arrogant and you know, sinful heathens. Um, and so, anyway, the, the, but the point I'm trying to make is, when people meet you and they hear, "Oh, this guy's a pastor," "Oh, this guy's a preacher," "Oh, this guy's a Christian," "Oh, this guy's been a Southern Baptist," you know, it's the 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 framework that they're going to develop around you um, is is oftentimes totally false, totally untrue of the gospel. It's been mostly framed, I think. I think actually mostly framed by in political through a political lens, which is actually I think incredibly damaging to the witness of the church, particularly in um, in cities. Yeah,
1: yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think that um, there is a brand. You know, there's a brand that deny, you know, people that are attached to the denomination have. There's a brand that evangelicals have. Sure, yeah. And so it really doesn't matter how broad we want to get out in our our brand of Christianity. There's still a brand around it that to somebody who doesn't believe, uh, there's going to be a negative tinge to it, and that negative tinge tends, as you just mentioned, to be associated around politics. Yeah. And I think that when people get to know you and realize, you know, at the end of the day, we care about the same things. We care about humanity, we care about the challenges that humanity faces. Our our outlook on how we solve those problems may be different, but at least the common denominator is the fact that we care and we love and we're trying to figure out the same thing. Then that that opens up a whole new playing field.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Atlanta. What that's happening in Atlanta in a general kind of city, you know, localized group of people way. I want to talk about the church later, but but just in our city right now, what is happening that excites you about what's well, happening here? Yeah, you know,
1: listen, Atlanta's a great place to live right now. Why? Well because we have an airport where you can get anywhere in the world. And so because of that and some of the industry that is in our city, like Coca-Cola and others, you know, we are a global city. We're actually a top forty global city. So that's exciting. The other thing that comes along with that is we're one of the only top 40 global cities that has a, an affordable cost of living still. Now, I know people that live in Atlanta may you know want to argue with me on that. But when compared... But like you
0: and I both have yards.
1: Right. We can drive... Which,
0: yeah, we drive cars. We have yards. We
1: have yards. That if that would be unheard of, uh, especially at our price point in London. Yeah, You're yeah, unheard, exactly. Unheard. I mean, insane to live in London or Tokyo or new, even New York and LA. And so I, I think what's really exciting is, is that... I, I, what I say about Atlanta is everyday people can actually make a difference here because you can, r- in, in relative terms, afford to yeah. live here. Now, again, I know some people listening to this are thinking, man, Atlanta's expensive. My taxes have gone up, you know, 100% in the last <laughs> year. I get all of that. But what I'm saying is when you compare us to other influential cities— um, you know, we're in a good, a good spot. And so I think Atlanta is going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to attract um, international business because people are finding that it's cheaper to do things here. We're seeing it with the movie industry. The movie industry yeah, has figured out. It's been amazing. They can relocate here and be I mean, as, just as Think effective. about the
0: 10-year arc on that. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. It's unbelievable.
1: I mean, well, listen, I mean, we're seeing it with our own eyes. I mean, when we lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, it was not uncommon to see a movie being shot on our street. It yeah. happened all of the time. So, of course, we assume move back to Atlanta. Well, those days are gone. Well, no, it's happening all you of see it the everywhere. time yeah. in, in our neighborhood. And so that's exciting because we have a global presence, and, uh, and yet it's still a fairly approachable city to live in from a, a cost of living standpoint. So that's exciting. Um, I think we also have the opportunity in Atlanta to, to solve some systemic problems that have plagued cities historically. And what I mean by that is, you know, obviously, uh, let's just take the, 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 the racial issue. You know, all you have to do is look at a map of Atlanta, and you can just see that it's divided by yeah. by you know racial designations. Well, why is that? Well, a lot of it has to do with the zoning code. It's just the way the zoning code was written. Um, you know, sort of in the desegregated South, and so we really kind of play you know replaced segregation with zoning codes. Right. Well why is that important? Well every one of us can have influence on how our neighborhood is zoned if we just showed up to meetings and and spoke up. you know I mean most neighborhood meetings uh, the most vocal in your neighborhood show up and you know, that's
0: right It's amazing when you when you're saying local politics, you know people are so fascinated in global politics or in particularly federal politics, national politics. but you actually can you can like this year, Go become one of the leading voices in In your your local area. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, let me just, so I'll tell you very practically one of the things I'm excited about here in Atlanta. And again, on the surface, people might look at it and be like, well, why does that matter? One of the things that is now legal in the city of Atlanta is you can have what's called an accessory dwelling unit. What that means is basically it's legal now for you to have a basement apartment or a carriage house apartment out behind your, your house. Yeah. Uh, now, those have existed for a long time, but they were never regulated by the city. So they were, you know, you couldn't build new ones. And basically the ones that were happening were all under the radar. Well, now it's legal. What, what impact does that have on our city? Well, it has a huge impact on affordable housing. So let's look at Midtown, for example. Like right now, the cost of living in Midtown has gone so far up over the last five years that the school teachers, the firemen, the policemen, they can't afford to live there. I mean, Al the barber who's been cutting hair in the neighborhood for 35 years is finding it harder and harder every day to, to live sure. in that neighborhood. Well, um, you know, Al actually is a real person. And, you know, Al is, is, is a prime example of what's happening in the neighborhoods. I mean, Al lived in the same apartment for 20 years. Ten years ago, his landlord sold, so he had to move again. And in the last ten years, Al's moved seven times. And now he's having to live with his daughter outside of the neighborhood because he just can't afford to live Mm -hmm. there anymore. Well, what the accessory dwelling unit um, law change allows for is that anybody who has a single-family home in Midtown or in in Atlanta— you could build a garage apartment out back, rent that out to a college student, to a school teacher, to a ple- So all of a sudden, you've got a whole new wave of affordable housing that can be added to the market almost overnight. So it's a way to solve the affordable housing yeah, that's uh, good. issue. And again, on the surface, you know, you read in the business journal that that law has been passed, and you're like, man, that really makes no what sense to matter? me as a believer. But if... You know, a thousand people did that across the city and uh, you know, provided housing, you know, again, to a college student, school teacher, whatever, at, you know, a thousand bucks a month, which they couldn't get an apartment for that, or $600, whatever, you know, whatever you need to charge. It's affordable housing.
0: Well, and just, you know, let's say every Christian did that. How much impact could you have on the person living in your basement apartment or whatever? Um,
1: and, and, and so, I think as believers, as we look at our city contextually— we need to get out of the habit of thinking somebody else will solve that problem.
0: That's right. Yeah. You
1: know, especially need to get out of the habit that the government will solve that problem. The government cannot solve the affordable housing issue. They just can't do it. There's not enough money in the treasury to to do that. There has to be a free market solution to that. And ultimately, you know, we as believers are just entrepreneurially minded people. We can help solve that particular issue. So, The the original question was, what am I excited about in Atlanta? I'm excited that there are things we can do to kind of move the needle if we just kind of pay attention to what's going on in our neighborhood. What
0: about in the church? What what are things that you see? There's certainly a lot of opportunity we're just talking about here. What are things you actually see within the church that encourage you?
1: Well, A, I think that because we are living in the urban age, um, there are pockets of the church um, in, and I'll just talk about the United States for a second there are pockets of the church that have awakened to this urban realization and so you know I think we're living in a great era in time where people are really trying to figure out you know how to live in the city how to be effective in the city I mean you know your church is a prime example of that and there are others in Atlanta whereas, Maybe 10 years ago, even in, in the Atlanta metro area, nobody was trying to figure that out. I mean, you, you didn't yeah. plant a church in the city unless you, you were getting a, out. Yeah, unless you had a death wish. And that was certainly true 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, now you're seeing people come back into the city. Not only are people moving into the city, but people are, are starting churches. So that's very, very encouraging. Now, I do think that we're on a steep learning curve, and I do think there's a lot of uh, challenges in front of us. Um, but I, I really am encouraged that you know that movement's happening
0: did you listen to the startup podcast about the church plan yeah yeah that absolutely. was interesting wasn't yeah. it?
1: well and, and that's another example of where there's there's enough movement to the city that, that like a got on popular their radar. yeah yeah a popular startup
0: podcast. business podcast is doing a whole season on right. yeah
1: yeah and so there's and there's something to learn from those of us that have planted churches in cities. And so the the wider public, the wider culture has taken notice of that, for sure.
0: That, what is something that discourages you? Something that we should be, you know, 20 years ago, if we were recording this podcast, you should say, look, y'all got to start planting churches in the cities. What What's something that you want to see the church that you're a little discouraged by that church needs to start approaching more seriously?
1: Well, I think... The church, and, and maybe human beings in general, but the church in particular, we, you know, we're always slow, um, you know, to, to change. We're always slow on, on issues, and so we are still a little bit slow on some of the major issues um, that are happening in society, and so... Uh, you know, I think um, old habits die hard, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so, again, I mentioned a minute ago the, the, the racial issues. We've got a lot of work to do on that. I mean, we're still very divided racially in our in our cities, and so it's, it's not so much a discouragement. I don't blame the church, but I do think that we've got a lot of work to do, and we probably ought to speed up the pace on that and i think the solution is it just means you know people who love jesus just need to get involved in their own communities and solve problems in their own own community yeah
0: that's that's i wholeheartedly agree well aaron it's always uh, a lot of fun talking to you about a number of different topics but it's especially about the city i know this is something that you've prayed about thought about a great deal so thanks so much for joining us. I oh, absolutely. Love it, man. So for Aaron Co., I'm Jason Dees, encouraging you to think through it.